0: Welcome to the Open Pantry Podcast for yet another episode, whether you're viewing or listening, I appreciate your time. So thanks so much for tuning in. Fantastic to have as the uh, as the space for food evolves over the last sort of five years or so, uh, the different versions of protein which are coming through um, are really exciting to see. So I was really excited to be connected with our next guest through a uh, through uh, Kim Teo from Mr. Yum, uh, who you might remember from a couple of episodes ago. Um, so it's fantastic to have Michael Fox, the CEO of Fable Food Co. With me. How are you, Michael?
1: Good, thanks, Sean. Yeah, th- thanks for having me along, and great to meet you.
0: Yeah, likewise. Um, so tell me about the brand. I mean, obviously, this this sort of you know um, different versions of protein has been a has been a big thing uh, the last sort of especially three to four years. Um, throughout America and England and Europe and Australia, really all around the world now. Um, how did you guys actually start the brand and what it's all about?
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess the genesis of the business and the, and the brand and the product. So, so I've been vegetarian for four and a half years, actually, yeah. I grew up in Queensland, loved meat as a kid growing up, yeah, right. um, but, uh, but went vegetarian, um, four and a half years ago for me, kind of a mix of yeah, health, environmental and ethical reasons. Um, and I was, I was living in the US at the time, living in Los Angeles and actually doing, doing a fashion business um, uh, I did for the last 10 years. So it was just a, just a personal thing, eating lots of Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers and mm-hmm. uh, the different products that were available in uh, the US market, the different mm-hmm. alternative proteins. And then, yeah, I finished up with the fashion business towards the end of, or halfway through 2018, um, took six months off, uh, just in that time I had, yeah, had a lot of time on my hands ended up reading more about the um, industrial animal agriculture and the alternative protein space and just got very passionate about the idea of helping to contribute to ending industrial animal agriculture for mm-hmm. for all the same reasons I was a vegetarian you know wanting to help sure. people eat a healthier diet uh, wanting to help uh, you know that reduce global greenhouse gas emissions and, mm-hmm. and yeah sort of help with the ethical improve the ethical treatment of animals mm-hmm. and so yeah figured that the best way i could contribute to that would be just to start an alternate take my entrepreneurial skills from from the fashion space and start an alternative protein company mm-hmm. um, um then thinking about how i would want to do that um you know i don't have a background in food um, right work-wise um i'm i'm a i'm a yeah, decent amateur home cook you know shop at my local farmer's markets on the weekend and (laughs) bake my own sourdough and brew my own water kefir and all all those kinds of fun things so just personally passionate about the space but um but no work experience in it so um but but out of that sort of personal passions i guess had a had the idea that okay if i do a meat alternative i'd want to do something out of kind of whole food natural Mm -hmm. minimally processed uh ingredients Mm -hmm. um and yeah, so really didn't had that thought but n- didn't know how to go about doing that so i went and talked to a whole lot of people in the food industry lots of chefs and yep. food manufacturers and different people and that sort of they sort of put me onto the idea of potentially using mushrooms as a base ingredient for a meat mm-hmm. alternative um mm-hmm. you know most meat alternatives are made using textured vegetable protein yes um, which is a yeah take like beans or pea protein uh, or peas uh strip away the the fiber and the fat so you're left with kind of a protein powder kind of like what you what you take if you went to the gym yes. and then uh yeah you extrude that put through an extrusion machine high high pressure and you get get this textured vegetable protein base um and then add different flavors to it so that's how most meat alternatives are made um mm-hmm. but i wanted to do something that might be a little bit yeah less processed and and so so yeah potentially using mushrooms as a base instead of tvp Um, So that led me to going talking to lots of people in the mushroom industry in Australia. Um, And ultimately, I met my two co-founders. So Jim Fuller um, uh, grew up in Texas, uh, fine dining chef for 10 years. Uh, Mm -hmm. Then he went and studied chemical engineering and agricultural science and Mm -hmm. ended up majoring in mycology, uh, which is mushroom science. And then he's worked as a mushroom scientist for the last 12 years. So uh, pretty unique. I didn't, know that, was a, I didn't of, uh, know that was. a thing, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a <not> mushroom I. <laughs> scientist. That's awesome. Yeah, and so he's so yeah, mushroom scientist for twelve years, fine dining chef for ten years. So mm. very unique. I, I've not met another chef and qualified chef and uh, and mushroom scientist no, in, in one, one person. <laughs> <laughs> so so Jim, uh, yeah, Jim's got obviously got an amazing technical skill set there, and then Chris McLaughlin co-founded Australia's largest organic mushroom farm. Right. Um, he was organic farmer of the year in Australia in 2018 and young farmer of the year um, in 2018. Um, so he's, yeah, strong agricultural background and, and all of that time in mushrooms. Um, so yeah, the three of us met uh, had sort of similar thoughts jim and chris had they 'd been working together previously and had started to do some experimentation with mushroom based meat alternatives mm-hmm. um, and then yeah, we met kind of hit it off um, i guess yeah, i have i 've got kind of the business business background so um, so we had really good complementary skill sets and sure. um, yeah came together with the the goal of launching uh, um, some meat alternatives, but using mushrooms as the base ingredient rather than, rather than animals. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of, yeah, where it stemmed from. And then we, we spent last year developing the product, uh, our first product, which um, replicates uh, slow cooked meats like pulled pork, braised yep. beef and beef brisket. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we use, it's a product 62% shiitake mushroom, mm-hmm. basically take the shiitake mushroom, we shred it. So you get that kind of, stringy sort of slow cooked meat type texture yes Um, and then the rest of the ingredients a short short list of all natural plant-based ingredients Um, so we launched the product in december um, in partnership with heston blumenthal Um, Mm. so jim and chris had a pre-existing relationship with heston uh, as heston had started to explore the mushroom space a couple of years ago um they'd been introduced to jim and chris and they they'd hit it off and spent some time visiting mushroom farms in Thailand and and in Victoria where, where Jim and Chris are based. Right. Um, and so we, yeah, Heston tried some of our products, uh, mid, mid last year, loved it. Um, so he started using it in his restaurants in the UK and, uh, yeah, we did our launch event at dinner by Heston in Melbourne uh, in December last year, um, before that restaurant closed. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, then we'd started to roll out sort of pre-coronavirus. We'd started to roll out into more restaurants and venues in sort yes. of January, February. Mm-hmm. Um, that all kind of, yeah, went on pause, obviously, with the food, food service space kind of uh, sort of shutting down or switching to... To take away and delivery, yeah, um, yeah, that all slowed down. So we launched into um, the meal kit company, Marley Spoon. Mm-hmm. Um, pro- products done really well there. Um, that they told us back in January that the was their best new product launch that they've they've ever had. Um, mm-hmm. So they've been adding it into more recipes and. Yeah, that's sort of made up for the sales we lost in food service because yeah, people were getting food delivered at home. So, so Marley Spoon and those kind of businesses have, have, have grown through this period. Yes. Um, and then yeah, launched into Harris Farm. That's uh, our first sort of foray into retail three weeks mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're just starting to roll out into some more restaurants now with uh, with food service opening back up. Yeah. So yeah, it's been a been a fun eighteen months. I
0: was go- I was going to say like how. Obviously, to get, you know, to have, you know, sort of 12 months as as an R&D, I mean, is pretty good to get something of that kind of nature. We're not talking about, we're talking about something that needs a lot of, you know, engineering and thought process and a lot of people involved. And um, even with three people involved at the top, like sometimes that can get complicated. So, well done. Um, no, thanks. Has it has it been launching, you know, a product? essentially three months, you know, three months into it, you're into COVID like that must've really, you know, scared you guys, especially if obviously the plan from what, from what you said, you know, launching with dinner by Heston, um, obviously the plan was to go into commercial venues first before you went into retail. Was that the sort of thinking?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we wanted to wanted to kind of focus on food service for for the first sort of six or twelve months was the original plan. Okay. Um, and yeah, yeah, we, we kind of designed and developed the product for for chefs to use. So it's like a good sort of base that you can take in all sorts of different directions. Mm. Um, it's also also relatively easy to work with. Like you can you can end up with a pulled pork or a or a beef brisket equivalent product, but without having to you know, take that we've kind of done a lot of the work beforehand in in um in producing the product so you don't have to go through the whole kind of slow cooked process, the slow cooking process that you would have to do with um with the animal equivalents. So it also yeah. kind of works well for for QSRs and, and and you know it's great for venues to not have to do all that work themselves in the kitchen. So yeah, we kind of designed the product with yeah with food service venues in mind so yeah it was definitely we had to yeah had to kind of adapt and shift uh with uh with yeah that whole space getting uh getting disrupted and and sort of you know essentially shut down for the last few months so we yeah so that's kind of we were able to adapt and and go into yeah meal kits and and retail um you know relatively quickly i guess one of the you know, pros and cons of being early stage and a startup, uh, you know, the con is that you don't have existing business to fall back on, but mm. the pro is you're starting out anyway. So you're pretty nimble and agile. So yeah, I guess we, we kind of adapted as, as best we could. And, you know, we also wanted to support the, we did some things we wanted to support the venues that we'd started working with. So we, we, we switched to doing some, we've done a few kind of creative online, pop-ups with different yep. venues so mm-hmm. on the sunshine coast we did an event uh, we called it the stay home date night hamper um we partnered cool. with four local restaurants and cafes who did fable ready meals so the customer paid went on to fablefood.co paid 99 um you get a meal for two we partnered with a vegan uh cake shop did some cupcakes local brewery did some beers And then we partnered with a local pottery studio. So you've got this at-home kind of pottery kit for date night. Um, So we sold sold a whole bunch of them. That was fun. Uh, And then that was just on the Sunshine Coast where I'm based. Mm -hmm. And then we did um, a couple of weeks ago, we did a a similar event called uh, uh, Dinner and Doodles, which was basically the same thing, except the event was um, we partnered with a life drawing studio in Sydney. (laughs) Yes. Uh, and so the, uh, the kind of date night event was a, yes. a streamed laughter in class. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> hence, the, wow. hence the doodles. Um, yes, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was fun. So, yeah, yeah, we kind of yeah, got some good, uh, yeah, kind of kept our relationships going with uh, venues on the Sunshine Coast and, and Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne for that second event. Um, so it was good to kind of keep keep working with those restaurants and highlight to people that, yeah, these restaurants are now doing kind of delivery and, and takeaway. Um, and then, uh, yeah, then as they start to open up, we'll uh, obviously to continue to work with them. So, so yeah, that was kind of one of the, you know, we hadn't planned to do any kind of online mm. pop-ups like that um, prior to coronavirus, but uh, yeah, kind of pivoted to playing around with some things like that, which was really fun.
0: Yeah, it's amazing what times of um, times of crisis and challenge, you know, really throws up. I mean, you probably would have um, got such different exposure to to people you never would have got into, maybe into. You know, year one or the full part of year one or year two, so it's just exactly. accelerated that, which is super cool. Yeah. Was I speak to a lot of um, a lot of people who have you know started started brands and, and of recent times started food brands. So I'm I'm interested why you guys decided to want to go commercial first before going into retail as part of that initial plan. Was that to Was that to try and get some ideas off the chefs that were using that product and then move it through the retail or
1: yeah, it was, it was probably two things. So one was, um, yeah, working with chefs, like really fast uh, way to get feedback on the product. Mm-hmm. Um, so just for example, working with Heston, like we've, we've learned a huge amount from um, from partnering with someone like him and getting his feedback on the product. And <clears throat> yeah, we've made some, product, some changes to the product out of that. It's given us good ideas for the next products that we're going to develop. Mm-hmm. Um, and then similarly with some of the other venues that we'd started to roll out in, you know, the, the feedback cycle and... and is so much faster with chefs than it is with yeah, going into a big retailer. Um, mm-hmm. and, yeah, you can kind of adapt more quickly and, you know, it's smaller runs of product, So you, then you can, you can change the product and, and adjust really easily. So sure. that's, so that was one part. Um, and then the second part was building the brand. Um, so I think, I think actually in, in our category, uh, impossible foods and beyond meat are, in the U S have done an amazing job of building their brands through food service. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, yeah, venues putting their brands on the menu. You know, they, they, they've built really strong brands that tell the story of the plant-based meat category and the shift to um, to eating eating plant-based meat alternatives. Mm-hmm. And so restaurants have have wanted to put their those brands on the menu. So that's helped in turn helped Impossible and Beyond further build their brands. And then when they've gone and launched into retail a few years later, um, they had this existing customer base wanting to buy the product and cook with the product. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really clever way of launching a, a food product. Yeah, I agree. And um, we, we sort of wanted to take a similar approach. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. you get the co as well from really good venues if you're really picky about who you work with. So it just makes a, exactly. it makes a hell of a lot of sense as you plan.
1: Yeah, um, exactly.
0: The last couple of years, is obviously, a, um, you know, um, meat alternatives has really grown into this really broad market now where there are, you know, so many different alternatives and, and that kind of stuff. Like what? what are the couple of things that you want consumers to know about meat alternatives and why they should actually try it, Michael?
1: Yeah. So, um, so th- there's different segments in the market. So there's obviously the vegans and vegetarians who, um, who don't eat meat. Um, and so they're one segment, but, but that's not who we're targeting with Fable. We're, we're targeting the kind of flexitarian consumer. So the flexitarian consumer eats meat, um, but wants to reduce their meat consumption. Um, the research, and, and this is about sort of now 30 or 40% of Australians, um, all the di- all the research shows 30 or 40% of Australians, um, aren't vegetarian and vegan, uh, so they eat meat, but they want to reduce their meat consumption. Right. Um, and the primary reason that they give for wanting to reduce their meat consumption is health. Right. Um, but fairly closely followed by, uh, environmental factors, Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then there's other things like ethics and, and price that follow that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's health, health and the environment. And, um, I guess the, 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 benefits there, you know, there's lots of, lots of documentaries and books and things that, that explain all of this. Um, mm. um but yeah, the key benefits on the health front, um, you know, the, uh, the world health organization has, uh, has said that, uh, red meat is, uh, very lightweight. Processed meats like sausages and bacon are, are, are carcinogenic, and uh, red meat is very likely to be carcinogenic. Um, you know, there's there's cancers like bowel cancer that you literally don't get if you eat a plant-based diet. Like, it's clearly meat is a is a is the cause of uh, of can or is a primary cause. It's, you need to eat meat to get cancers like that. Um, so that it's so yeah, there's a whole bunch and, there, and there's tons of other health reasons not either either not to eat meat or at least to reduce your meat. Um, consumption. So that's the health front. And then on the environmental front, 14 and a half percent of the world's greenhouse gas emissions are caused by animal agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, and 47 uh, percent of the world's uh, habitable land mass is devoted to animal agriculture. Um, those two figures kind of blew my mind when I first heard them, like 14 and a half percent of greenhouse gas emissions. So it's more than car all of transport combined. It's more than all of the cars, planes, ships, buses in the world, yeah. um, and uh, and and then the it's it's second only it's the second biggest cause of greenhouse gas emissions only behind electricity production. So mm. you know if we want to try and limit climate change, the the one of the biggest things that we can all do is eat eat a lot less meat. Um, and then the, the 47% of uh, the world's habitable land mass is de- being devoted to animal agriculture. That's a UN Department of Agriculture figure. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of blew my mind, but the, the reason it's so large is two things. So, one, a lot of land is devoted to graze animals. Uh, but, secondly, most more than half of the world's crops that are grown are uh, grown to feed not humans, but to feed animals, which humans then eat. Um, and the reason we have to grow so many Crops to feed all these factory farmed animals is that, um, for example, a pig, you've got to feed a pig eight kilograms of plant matter to get one kilogram of pork. Mm. Um, So it's a very inefficient way to produce food. So in Australia, we eat more than 100 kilograms of meat per person per year. Yeah, you know, we've got to grow around a ton of plant matter just to get that 100 kilograms of, of meat, um, mm. and that takes up a lot of space. Mm. So, so those are the it's that kind of data that yeah that's coming through in in all of the and, and lots of other information that's coming through in all of these all of the documentaries and books and people are just yeah starting to get more educated about these things and um, that's leading them to want to at least reduce their meat consumption.
0: Do you think, um, like we're using the term "want," there? Do you think is yeah. is studies showing now that people are actually dropping their meat consumption?
1: Yeah. That's so cool. this is yeah. So this is this is super interesting. So um, people want to reduce their meat consumption, but it's, the question is whether they actually do it. It's mm. similar to if you ask someone in January, you know, do you want on New Year's Day? Do you want to? go to get a gym membership and go to the gym twice a week this year. They're going to say yes, (laughs) Yes. but they tend not to as the year progresses. And so, so yeah, people want to reduce their meat consumption, but they find it difficult because they love, people love the taste and texture of meat. You know, we, we evolved, um, eating meat. Not not as much as we not as much as we eat today, but we did involve mm. eating meat and we we crave it, um, and so it's hard. Like I mean, I went vegetarian. I've, I it was difficult. Like I, it took me a while to get used to not eating meat. I changed all my recipes. You know, it's yeah. a lot of behavioural change that's got to go on to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this flexitarian customer, you know, they they haven't gone that far to be able to do that, but they want to reduce their meat consumption. So so then uh, you know we and other plant based alternative protein companies have gone and looked at okay, well, what's, yeah, what are the drivers? What's going to help people, help make it easier for people to reduce their meat consumption? And yeah, the number one thing people still want is the taste and texture of meat. Mm-hmm. So, you know, flexitarians, most flexitarians aren't going to go and eat tofu and falafel balls and hemp seed patties. They still want the taste and texture of meat. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we want to, our goal is to help people reduce their meat consumption, if we want to go and do that, um, we need to deliver on the taste, deliver a product that has, still has the taste and texture of meat. Um, and then the second thing is price. Um, so, you know, the food food category is very, very price elastic, very price sensitive. Mm. So people are willing to pay a little bit of a premium in the category to reduce their meat consumption, but not too much. Um, and if we want to get a lot of people reducing their meat consumption, you know, ideally we're ideally we're priced cheaper than meat. And, and ultimately at scale um, we will be or meat alternatives will be because um, it's just a much more efficient way to produce food. Like in our product, we start with a kilogram of mushrooms and a kilo, and other plant matter. We end up with a kilogram of plant-based meat at the end. So we've got a lot less resources and inputs going into the product versus a, a pulled pork, which is, yeah, yeah, you've got that. You've got to, got to convert it through the animal, which is inefficient. Mm. Um, so ultimately our goal is to have a product that um, is at least as good or better than meat in terms of taste and texture um, and is at least the same price, if not cheaper than meat um, and and if you can deliver that and then it's just a benefit that it's plant based, Um, you know, the consumer doesn't really have to think about changing their behavior, you know, and there's other little things like, you know, is it, how is it to cook? How easy is it to switch uh, from a animal dish, you know, switch your recipes over to this one. So we try to try to make all of those things easy for the, for the chef or the customer as well. Um, Yeah. And then, so yeah, if we can deliver better taste and texture, lower price, plant-based, you know, in theory, then it's a no brainer for people to switch over. Even people who don't even want to reduce their meat consumption. If the taste mm. and texture is better and the price is cheaper, then, then, then even some of those people will do it.
0: Yeah, I think price is always going to be something that we need to factor in whether we, whether we like it or not when we look at things like this because um, I suppose... My concern is especially coming out of COVID with a lot of people uh, around the world on, you know, less income, they'll move to cheaper, cheaper things. So that's why, that's why steakhouses are very hard to make profitable anymore because beef is so expensive. Um, And that's why a lot of brands go to chicken because the moment it's the most, it's the cheapest animal protein that's going around. So um, that's why you see a lot of fried chicken venues and and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Uh, Yeah.
1: Yeah. And yeah, chickens, I, you know, Ten years ago, chicken overtook beef as the as the meat type that we eat the most in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for that exactly. reason, exactly yeah. for price. Yeah, yep. Yeah.
0: What do you th- What do you think the last sort of 20 to 30 years has seen such an explosion in people who uh, account for themselves as either vegan or vegetarian? Because, like me in my late 30s, like I remember coming up. Like I remember as I was growing up, it was probably. You know, five to ten percent would say they were vegetarian or vegan, right? Sort of veganism really came through probably fifteen years ago, from from you know anecdotal from me, and now it's and last five years it's just seemed to explode. Do you think it's just yeah. people understanding more about the efficacy of animals and and that kind of stuff? Because yeah, I'm just trying to figure out why that actually is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my own journey was like that. Like, you know, I was an avid meat eater. Um, and then I probably went through a period of about 10 years where I'd start, just started to have a bit of an understanding of the health, environmental and ethical issues around animal meat, but I Mm. didn't really delve into it too much. It was just a little bit. And I, it had probably over 10 years, I'd probably halved my meat consumption or maybe even dropped it to a third of what it was. Um, Mm. and then, uh, then I finally, I read a book, um, Called eating animals by Jonathan Safran Foer and mm-hmm. it, easily the, the best laid out case for anything that I've read in my life. Like he just, he, he's actually normally a fiction writer. So he's a very good storyteller and he, t- in the book, he takes you through his own personal journey. He sort of set out, he, he started out the book as a meat eater um, and he said, you know, I've, I've heard about this stuff in the, about how our meats produced. And I want to go and learn about it. And he kind of takes you through that a couple of years of his exploration of the space Mm-hmm. Um, and just does a really good job of kind of telling you the story and, and takes you on that journey um, with him. And yeah, I finished, I, I you know, I was already part way there, but I finished reading that book and yeah, became vegetarian um, basically that day. I think actually I had, I was sitting on a plane as I finished reading it and I was eating a meatball sandwich on the plane, and I didn't finish the sandwich. <laughs>
0: just felt guilty um, automatically. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And 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 I think I think that's what it is. Like it's just it's just more yeah more awareness and understanding of of these issues, and and they are. I mean, any one of the three of them is in, of the yeah, health, environment, and ethical uh, issues around animal meat. Any one of them is compelling a really compelling case to not eat meat and then yeah you combine all three of them it's yeah i mean in my mind it's you know it's it's, sort of sense it's a no-brainer except except that we still crave (laughs) crave these products you know and i and i'm not fully vegan like i'm i'm probably where i was with meat five years ago you know I'm, i'm eating about a third of the dairy and eggs that i used to and you know i know i should be vegan but but I'm um, just waiting for the egg and uh, dairy alternatives. There's some good ones coming out now. i um, just yeah. waiting for a few more good ones. And I think that'll make it easy, easier for me to, to go fully vegan, but I know it should be, but um, just haven't quite got there. That so little t- step. That little taste and texture issue. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: That makes me feel a bit better, Michael. Um, <laughs> uh, what are the couple of the, uh, the myths around um, meat alternatives? Because I think, whoever's doing the lobbying is doing a very good job of trying to stop the rise of meat alternatives. Um, and I think arguably, I think the industry, the meat industry as a whole has done a better job of either marketing or changing their practices, um, as a whole of how they treat their animals like. So is that balance there at the moment, right? We've probably never had either such promotion or from what I see in the farms that I see, um, better treatment of animals than we have at the moment. But but obviously this, you know, these myths that are coming around, you know, meat alternatives, what are some of the ones that you've sort of heard of that you want to debunk?
1: Yeah, so, yeah, so the meat, meat global meat industry is uh, worth over a trillion dollars. Um, it's about 8% of global GDP is okay. meat. It's like wow. monstrous, monstrous mm. industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of vested interests who, you know, don't want, want to kind of, have people still eating meat and kind of shut down this alternative protein trend? Yes. Um, and so, yeah. So, um, on the flip side, a lot of meat meat companies can see that these changes are coming and and that they're going to need to adjust and and they're also changing. So, it's I think the meat the meat industry is kind of playing in two camps. They're so like, all right, with ideal scenarios, we can. Just stop people wanting to reduce their meat consumption, but mm-hmm. it seems like they're going to do it anyway. So we'll go, um, we'll go produce some meat alternatives too. So yes. I, hope, I hope they continue to do more of the latter. Um, so yeah, some of the myths. Um, uh, probably one of the big ones is around um, soy. So there's this myth that uh, if you're male and you eat soy, it's full of estrogen, and you're going to grow man titties. Yes. Um, so that 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 myth. Was so that came from uh, a study in the 1970s. Scientists uh, scientists fed rats uh, this particular little extract out of soy. Um, yeah, right. These phytoestrogens that do kind of mimic estrogen, and they fed diet these rats a diet 100 diet. All they ate was the phytoestrogens out of soy, um, right. and yes, it messed with their hormones. So, yes. so yes, if you're a rat and you eat <laughs> only extracted phytoestrogens from soy products and nothing else um it will mess with your hormones but the reality is we don't do all of those things Mm -hmm. um and soy just doesn't doesn't uh have hormonal impacts on on people like that like in asia uh people in asia eat a huge amount of soy um, particularly Mm -hmm. tofu and there's no kind of hormone hormonal issues across um asia because of that Mm. but this myth was spread so as soy milk started to become popular in the 80s and 90s in the uk um the uk dairy industry pushed out this myth um and and this based on this this study that had been done they wanted to protect their product Mm. yeah exactly exactly and so that and that's just permeated through cultures uh, through our culture so people still think that there's this issue with soy but soy soy is an incredibly healthy um uh, healthy food. It's uh, high in pro- naturally high in protein. Um, it's got all the essential amino acids. Um, it, it is a is a really good food. So that's that's one myth. We, it, most, a lot of meat alternatives are based on soy. Um, mm-hmm. Ours isn't. Ours is based on mushrooms. So mm-hmm. um, we use we use a little bit of soy protein, but but a fairly small percentage. Um, so yeah. So that's that's kind of one big myth. Um, I mean, I think I think the other myth is like, uh, and this is a bit of a more fundamental one, but. You know, you walk into the meat section in Woolworths. Um, there's pictures of happy cows on <laughs> pigs on grassy farms. Yes. The yeah. happy farmer kind of standing there, happy. Mm. Uh, you know, with within the farm. It's and it's you know, there's no pictures of the of the factory farm where where most of the pigs and chickens are actually grown. Um, mm. There's no pictures of the farmer kind of suffering through drought because they you know meat prices are, that's low margin and they've got to you know they're forced to put more cows on the, on the land than they should in order to yeah. keep their business surviving. And then when a drought hits um, it's, you know, it's, it's terrible for the farmer as well. Um, you know, none of that is shown on the, on the packaging and on the signs up in the supermarket. Um, mm. You know, the, the reality of um, the meat industry is very different to, um, to, to what's the kind of public public face. And I think that's what's, you know, people learning more about that is what's prompted this flexitarian consumer to um, to yeah, do this whole whole drive of this flexitarian consumer to want to reduce their meat consumption.
0: Yeah, it's interesting the use of um, of farmers in marketing. Uh, farmers are probably one of the I think have always been rated as one of the highest trusting. Yeah, like brand, like personal brands out there in the marketplace. So I think that's why farmers always use because they can be trusted, and, and you know, largely they do an incredible job with the with the hand they're dealt. You know, sometimes it's exactly. it's hard both ways, yeah. right?
1: yeah and it's and it's kind of not fair like like the food industry, you know for the most part food and retail industry farmers kind of get pretty screwed they, they mm, it's a, most yeah, definitely. it's a tough yeah. business a low margin business long hours so the food food industry and retail industry doesn't necessarily you know help support farmers that much and, and nor really does the government um yet they're happy to kind of leverage off the brand and the Absolutely. trust that farmers have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, actually, another another myth in our category is that um, alternative proteins is, are going to be bad for farmers, um, and that that is that's just not the case. I mean, our, our alternative proteins are still made from farmed food. Yes, it's just a, mm. just different. It's just not animals. That's all. So so yes, it may involve a switch to alternative proteins. Um, may involve some change in the types of um, things that we farm and grow, mm-hmm. um, but we're still going to need farmers growing food. Like that's that's not going to change. And um, yeah, yeah, you know, we we, we want to help support farmers through that change. Um, I think the government should uh, should also help support farmers through through the changes that are happening in the industry and yeah, climate 100%. change and and all the other things that are that are making it difficult for farmers. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's kind of another misconception. And actually, probably another misconception is that meat alternatives are, uh, you know, overly processed foods. Yes. Um, and that's Mm -hmm. something again, that the meat industry is pushing. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean that, that, I, I do. I like. I, I get that to an extent, uh, and a big driver for us was using mushrooms as a base ingredient as opposed to textured vegetable protein. You know, mm-hmm. I, I try to eat a really minimally processed, whole food based diet myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a little. It's a little bit hypocritical for the meat industry to to say that um, you know meat is perfect and clean and uh, and a and yeah a kind of whole food versus um, versus meat alternatives because yeah, you know, like chickens in factory farms, you know, are still fed antibiotics. Um, you don't have to put antibiotics on the ingredient list when you sell chicken because the meat industry's lobbied to say chicken is an ingredient on its own. So yes. when you buy chicken, it just says chicken, but you don't <laughs> see, the, see all of the things that the chicken was fed and, uh, and the conditions that the chicken was raised in. Um, yeah, because the, the meat, meat, meat lobby's done a really good job of protecting themselves with all of that.
0: Super interesting when you... Um when you dig underneath the surface a bit, isn't it, Michael? <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's been—it's a fascinating space to operate in. Um, mm. Yeah, and I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, I've been super passionate about it for for a few years, just being vegetarian myself, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, just really really enjoy this space.
0: So, I guess my last question to you, mate, is like—you've been operating for nearly six months now, um, probably—and and where do you want to take Fable next? You—you've know, made some really good strides in a really hard time
1: yeah so i mean our mission our mission is to help and help contribute to ending industrial animal agriculture i mean we we'd like to and I, and I use the word industrial there like i think i think there's some arguments for from a sustainability perspective that you know we still have some farmed animals mm-hmm. from an ethical perspective um no we shouldn't but from a sustainability perspective and maybe even a health perspective a little bit of meat is good
0: mm-hmm. potentially
1: good but we should not be eating 110 kilograms of meat per person per year in Australia you know maybe that figure should be 10 kilos of meat um, per person mm-hmm. per year and so we want to help drive that um, that shift uh, and so for us to achieve that um, you know we want to build a, a large um, food company that that provides meat alternatives to that makes it easier for people to reduce their meat consumption um, mm-hmm. rather than trying to force them to Eat tofu or falafel balls or hemp seed patties. You know, just make it easy. Give them a, the exact taste and texture that they want um, at a cheaper price. Just happens to be made from, in our case, mushrooms and plants. So, so yeah, we want to grow more in in, in food service. We want to work with um, lots of restaurants and and uh, offer our product through there. We want to want to sell fable into retail. We want to do that. You know, initially focusing on Australia, but um, we launched in Singapore right before COVID into some restaurants there. Um, We're in the UK already with Heston. Um, Mm -hmm. We'll keep focusing on Australia for the next year or two at least, but Mm -hmm. we'll start out, start some international expansion now and ramp that up later. Um, So, yeah, yeah, the goal is to, you know, we've got to to do this at scale if we want to have have a big impact. Yeah,
0: makes a lot of sense. Best of luck to
1: you. Um, Thanks, Sean.
0: Yeah, what's what's the best way that people can find out about Fable and what you guys are all about?
1: Yeah, so yeah, uh, website's a good place to start, FableFood.co, um, and then uh, Instagram's a the place where we're most uh, prevalent on social media. So at FableFood.co, uh, and then yeah, my email address is michael at uh, FableFood.co. Um, if anyone wants to wants to reach out directly,
0: awesome. Always in the bio of this podcast, so you can connect easy up with Michael. Michael Fox, CEO of Fable Food Co. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Thanks, Sean. Great to chat to you.